0: If you think of anger or whatever your affliction is, as your teacher, there's this way in which we have to stick with that in a way that is spacious, in a way that we're staying with ourselves not in the sense of, I reject this, in the sense of, I am going to cut this off by not doing it because it doesn't work that way. We have to go into it, go into our afflictions with a kind of gentleness and this is something Pema Chodron uh, says, uh, spacious awareness and compassion towards ourselves. There's this way in which we have to be firm with ourselves, and I think that's where talking about kind of like being an addict and always say, well, my go-to place is anger. And if you're angry, you know, one of the things I like to say about anger is when we're angry, we don't think we're angry, we think we're right.
1: Rev. Shinshu Roberts is co-founder and teacher with Rev. Daijaku Kinst of Ocean Gate Zen Center in Capitola, California. She is a Dharma heir of Sojun Weitzman Roshi, abbot of the Berkeley Zen Center, in the Soto Zen lineage of Shunru Suzuki, founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. She holds the appointment of international Dharma teacher in the Japanese Soto Zen School, She's the author of Being Time, a practitioner's guide to Dogen's *Shobogenzo Uji, published by Wisdom in 2018. Reverend Shunshu's writing has appeared in Buddha Dharma and Lion's Roar. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Mar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. Listeners of this podcast are invited to try a free month of training which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. Reverend Shinshu, I wanted to... I wanted to start our conversation today with this quote from one of your articles in Lion's Roar, which, well, I just liked it very much. And it reads Whenever we encounter a difficult situation, relationship, or contrary opinion, we must rely upon our vow to encourage and benefit all beings. Before that vow can form, though, we must first define for ourselves what it is. We most care about. And I guess the reason I liked that, that quote, that line was, you know, very often we, people talk about the vow, but you're saying, right, slow down. (laughs) Before you get to the vow, let's talk about your values in a way. Like what is, what is the reason you're
2: making this vow? Why are you making this vow? -er?" Well, you know, I don't want to interpret too much. I'll just sort of let you
0: Well, I think um, the Bodhisattva vow, the way we usually do it, beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it is really pretty overwhelming. And actually, that vow, I think, is a koan, right? Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Goodness gracious, how in the world do you do that? So, I think that that's a big koan for us. So, that is the kind of traditional bodhisattva vow. And I think the question is okay, well, how do we actually engage with that? How do we bring that about? And the only way I think we can bring it about is to look at our own issues and problems and our own deepest desires and to um, formulate for ourselves a vow that is applicable to our own lives. So for example, in my case, when I first started practicing, when I was in my mid-30s, I was a very angry person. I had a lot of anger. And uh, so I finally came to the place of making a personal vow, which was, how can I be compassionate? How can I be patient? How can I vow? That my deepest vow was to want to communicate. And you know, classically, anger is about pushing away. We talk about in Buddhism, in the, I think it's the second noble truth, there's a cause for suffering, and the cause of suffering is that you don't want something that you are getting. You want something you're not getting. And the third thing is called the desire for rebecoming, which is this way in which we perpetuate the delusional self. So, you know, from the position of being an anger type saying, I don't want this, I don't want this. But at the same time, I think every one of us wants to be heard. We want to be able to communicate. And in the case of anger, when you're pushing away, pushing away, that's what people receive. They don't receive the message. A friend of mine said to me one time, he said, you know, your ideas are great, but your delivery is really bad. So how do I cultivate that vow. And to be honest with you, I think in some ways, when we really cultivate that vow, it's almost like being addicted to something where you're on your knees and you're saying, uncle, I, I give up, you know, I really give up. And then I say, what is it that I most want in the world? Like, I want to be a compassionate being. I want to be patient within the context of who I am and my own life in each situation as it arises in this moment. And so that was the personal vow that I made to myself. And I really worked with it by using Shantideva, uh, his guide, Chapter 6 on Cultivating Patience. Shantideva is such a pragmatic teaching. You know, he clearly, first of all, I think he was an anger type, but Mm. he's so pragmatic in that chapter. You know, it starts out with this really scary line, which is one moment of anger destroys, you know, like culpas of good work. And you go, oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what I with that, you know? Yeah.
1: I'm like many culpas deep now. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm like, it'll never work. I'm never going to get out of this hole. Yeah. And when I teach this, people are actually quite dismayed by this line. But I would say the way I like to think about it in real life, if you will, I mean, is this way of a practical application of when you break trust with people, Mm. which anger does, when you break trust with someone, it takes a very, very, very long time to rebuild trust. One moment of breaking trust destroys a a lot of uh, connections at that point. So to get back to your original question, this way that we have to create a vow that reflects our own particular situation, our own karma, our personality, our neuroses, all those elements that come together to make us who we are as a person. So we need to find out who we are as a person. We need to uh, make the vow in the context of what's real for us, what's doable for us, and work with that. And then I think that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. And at that point, that koan of beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Those numberless beings are this moment, this situation, this person, myself, yourself. How do we communicate with each other? What is the most skillful thing that we can do? And that. That's where uh, we engage in our life and we engage in practice. So it can't be some kind of global,
2: airy-fairy,
0: you know, uh, unrealistic, uh, disconnected notion of the bodhisattva vow. The bodhisattva vow has to happen in the context of our own lives, our own messy lives.
1: If I'm hearing you, it... (sighs) It's not that you, or I don't know, maybe you can help me understand this. You didn't, did you vow to get rid of the anger or did you vow to like, I vow to be more loving or like, what was the, what was the vow? Because sometimes I think when sometimes it's framed in a negative, right? Like I vow not to eat chocolate anymore. Well, it's like not a very strong (laughs) vow, like, or I, that maybe is a bad example, but you know when, when we are vowed to get away from something versus vowed to move forward towards something.
0: I, can't, I, don't, I don't think we can make a vow that cuts things off.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, Dogen says in the um, fascicle that he wrote called Kato, which means twining vines, and basically he's talking about teachers and students mm-hmm. and how our personalities entwine, support, come in conflict. With our teacher, and it's the fact that we stick in there with each other and support each other that brings about transformation. So if you think of anger or whatever your affliction is as your teacher, there's this way in which we have to stick with that in a way that is spacious, in a way that we're staying with ourselves, not in the sense of, I reject this, in the sense of, I am going to cut this off by not doing it because it doesn't work that way. We have to go into it, go into our afflictions with a kind of gentleness, and this is something Pema Chodron uh, says, uh, spacious awareness and uh, compassion towards ourselves. There's this way in which we have to be firm with ourselves and I think that's where talking about kind of like being an addict and always say, well, my go-to place is anger. And if you're angry, you know one of the things I like to say about anger is when we're angry, we don't think we're angry; we think we're right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's that's the way it appears for me too. Yeah.
0: You know, it's like at, (laughs) at that point we have to entertain the possibility that we are not right. Yeah, and we are not skillful, and that we can go into that. Why is it like that? What, you know, this in a way is kind of where for us Western psychology comes in. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually investigate and acknowledge the struggles that we have. And for me, I did this little trick around that, which was I kind of did an interim step, which was I said, I'm people are not hearing what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But because I want them to hear what I'm saying, I'm going to change the way I'm saying it, not because I want to be skillful, but because I want to be heard.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And what I found out was the more I engaged in that activity, the more I wanted to engage in the activity because it was skillful and compassionate rather than kind of manipulative to be heard. Does that make sense? Yes. So that was a way in which I tried to negotiate with a part of myself that was like, no, I'm right, no. Uh, you you're not going to criticize me because I'm not compassionate. I don't care about compassion. I just care about being hurt. So that way of saying, okay, where's that place that I can actually negotiate with that part of myself in a way that's kind, in a way that is transformative. And so by going into that event and finding this kind of, and along with the help of Shanti Devas, you know, and the taking that seriously, and in that chapter, he, it's very interesting. He really does a steps and stages thing about how to work with that, exchanging, you know, a, a, creating empathy for the other person, all sorts of things like that. So, so that's the way uh, I worked with it. And, um, yeah, so you can't cut it off. Mm-hmm. You have to somehow find a way to love yourself, negotiate with yourself, and also be firm at the same time.
1: Well, and I think this the final part of the that quote is we must first define for ourselves what it is we we most care about. It's almost yeah. you know, I'm sort of thinking about how you know Thich Nhat Han has done all of this reframing of you know it, with the precepts there often there's like a no, we don't do this, we don't do that, we don't do that. and he sort of did a reframing where it's like, well, we're about this, we're about this, we're about this." Uh, I think partly because people are drawn to sugar instead of salt or, you know, that. So, you know, for those who are listening and they're, and they're dealing with anger, I mean, there's, there's more than just me and you out there.
2: Or greed. We're-
1: <laughs> yeah, or greed, right.
0: delusion. Yeah, all of those. The three biggies, right? Yeah.
1: Well, I was really drawn by that. Your use of the word trust. And it really hit me when you said that, about how when trust is lost, that is so hard to get back. And it's so hard to give it back. Like if, if I lose trust in somebody else, boy, I have to talk myself into it if I even want to, you know?
0: Yeah. yeah. And that, that's a bodhisattva practice as well. This way on the other side, someone has broken trust with you. Mm-hmm. how do you stay open in an intelligent way right not in a kind of pollyannish way but in an intelligent way of saying yes this person broke trust with me and i can still be open to the possibility that that trust can be uh reformatted uh you know brought uh, forward again it's f- sort of like you know when we have family right in our families Where um,
1: (laughs) none of us have trust issues with our
0: families (laughs) where we have these really wildly diverging views about politics for example Mm. and how do we how do we have those conversations and i think one way we have those conversations is that we trust our love for each other because we're family right that kind of goes without saying
3: Mm-hmm.
0: I have to do really egregious things for uh, us not to want to reconnect in some way. And this way that so there's that kind of basic sense of our connection with each other. And of course, this is the Buddhist. Bod, this is what Buddhism is about. This is the doctrine of emptiness, no inherently, you know, existence. And so, this way that that no inherent existence means that we're all family. We're all connected with each other. But to go back to the you know, actual birth family example is that as I think that we must create that goodwill, have that basic goodwill towards each other, and then in some ways we have to drop our agenda. Mm-hmm. So often, if we don't trust somebody, we broken trust. This broken trust has happened. Then we start to make up uh, conditions like. Can you meet this condition for me to trust you? Can you meet this condition for me to trust you? And to look at that and say, maybe I'm being um, unrealistic. Maybe this person can't meet this condition, but is there some other way that this can be expressed?
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And that there be this, but at the same time, that you're not unaware of the difficulties you're not unaware of this you're not giving yourself away in a certain uh that's going to be harmful so it's, you know kind of right. balance there right that's the some
1: families got right. you got to put up some boundaries <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so
0: absolutely. there's
1: people out there who are like yeah
0: boundaries are boundaries are not a problem i don't and yeah. buddhism you know just because we say we are all one does not mean that we don't have boundaries mhm right Uh, we need to have boundaries and it's like there are people who should be in prison should be incarcerated because they are doing things that are harmful when they're out running around in the real world you know outside the prison and yet it shouldn't i don't think it should be punitive the punitive is extra right right And that's the problem, is it's not that we're drawing boundaries, it's are the boundaries punitive, are the boundaries hurtful, is there's this ill will in it. Because all of us, when we do things that are unskillful, to me, it's on a continuum. So the continuum is about a kind of delusion that we all have, and some of our delusions are small and less harmful, and some of our delusions are bigger and very, very harmful. But they are delusions, and so you know the Buddha says we are like in the Lotus Sutra. He says we're like children in a burning house, and we don't know the house is burning.
1: <laughs> well, I feel like we're in a burning house right now, and we yeah. feel <laughs> like the house is burning. <laughs>
0: It's very hot in the house.
1: It's very hot in the house right at this this very moment.
0: <laughs> well, let me say something about this yeah. hot house. Yeah. So Dogan talks about in um, the fascicle kuge, which means flowers of emptiness. He says in kuge, says the bodhisattva is born in the fire of the blue lotus. Mm. So the blue lotus is the Saha world. The blue lotus is this Buddha field of Shakyamuni Buddha. And we live, Shakyamuni Buddha's Buddha field is a Buddha field that has delusion, it has greed, it has hate, it has all those afflictive things going on. And so for us to, we should strive to overcome that. We should strive. This is the Bodhisattva path, right? That we make this effort. You know in early Buddhism, the path statement is you get off the wheel of birth and death and you just don't come back to the sah world. but in the Bodhisattva path, you keep being reborn back into the Sa world. hopefully as the higher stages of Bodhisattvahood come about, you are able to enact more and more and more helpful energy into this world that you're born back into into the Sa world. So here we are, you know um, I wanted to tell you guys a story from the Vimalakirti Sutra, which I really love, and- I know, love it too. You, you know the story? Okay, so- No, I
1: know, well, I know the the sutra, but let's hear yeah. the story.
0: So, you know, in, in chapter 10 of the Vimalakirti Sutra, um, Shariputra, I guess the sutra, you know, Vimalakirti has been talking for a long time, <laughs> and Shariputra is thinking to himself, you know, it's lunchtime, I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. And Vimalakirti, is he is want to do, and can read Shariputra's mind. And so he calls him on it. And he says, oh, Shariputra, you're such a slob. He doesn't use the word slob, but basically, yeah. Shariputra, you know, like we're doing the Dharma teachings and you're thinking about eating lunch. And so he says, okay, I'll take pity on you and uh, I'll get you some lunch. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it because I'm going to send my avatar to another Buddha field. And this Buddha field is the Buddha field of fragrance. And the Buddha's name in this Buddha field, and this is a mouthful, is Accumulation of Fragrances, is this Buddha Buddha's name. So, okay, so the you know, avatar or whatever goes to this Buddha field, and they're all eating lunch at this Buddha field. And the avatar says, well, <clears throat> can I have your leftovers to take back to the Sahel world? And so the, the Buddha says, Yeah, you can have our leftovers. And so the other bodhisattvas is in that Buddha field where you can, you know, you get enlightened by smelling things. Like everything smells great. You eat food, you get compassionate from the smell of the food. I mean, you know, this is like easy street from easy.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not my cushion.
0: <laughs> but you know, wow, find me up for that Buddha field. Right. So, the, so the, the bodhisattvas in that Buddha field say to accumulation of fragrances that, hey, can we go back to the Sahara world? We're like really curious about it. And the Buddha says, well, you can go back there. But first of all, you have to you know, drop your smell good scent. Mm.
2: Because
0: that's not going to work very well. And I just want you to know that when you get there, don't be arrogant because they've got problems. So, okay, so everybody somehow teleports back to Vimalakirti's room, which we know is very small and has many, many, many people. And yeah, exactly. Bodhisattvas, etc. in this little room. So they get there, and the, the Bodhisattvas from the land of the fragrances, they are really appalled and, and taken aback and disillusioned about Shakyamuni Buddha's Buddha field because everybody's so messed up. And somehow they are able to, you know, like divine this by being in that space. And Vimalakirti says, he says, well, you know, uh, don't don't put down Shakyamuni Buddha's Buddha field because in this Buddha field we have greed, but that allows people to become generous. And in this Buddha field we have anger, which allows people to be patient, et cetera. And he goes through about twenty of these things about, you know, what what this is. So. What I get from that is I say to myself, I live in the Saha world. I should not expect it to be any different. And actually, if I look at history, these, there have been greedy people doing crazy things throughout, you know, history, throughout recorded history. So there's this way in which is it going to change? Is Mm -hmm. it suddenly be different? You know, what is my role in the midst of this? And my role, I think, as a religious person, <clears throat> but not even as a religious person, as a moral person, as a person who cares about ethics, who cares about other people. And in Buddhism, we say, in Mahayana Buddhism, we say bodhisattva practice. And so how can I do this bodhisattva practice? How can, you know, in, in the in the saha world, in, in Dogen's fascicle about being born in the Blue Lotus, the Bodhisattva can only come out of fire because otherwise there's no need for the Bodhisattva. Otherwise, it's like the land of the fragrances. Right. So here we are. We were born into this sahu world. We weren't born into another Buddha field. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do? Are we going to do try to get our act together and in every situation in our life, do our best to be helpful and mm-hmm. to discern what that is? Are we going to make it worse? So it seems to me that we just have to kind of take a deep breath and say, yep, we're in the Saha world. This is what it's like. This is Shakyamuni's Buddha field. If you believe this mythology, if it is a mythology, you know, but I've drunk the Kool-Aid. So (laughs) I'm on board with this. And I find it encouraging to put it in a certain perspective of no, it's, it's not going to change but we can make it better and and that's
2: our job yeah and i think even what's coming to my mind is like i don't even know i
1: honestly
0: don't even know if it makes it better or not but well that's faith right yeah that's our faith in in the basic practice
1: but i mean for me in some ways it, it, like i don't even care on on some level, like I don't even care, like whether it makes it better, doesn't make it better, I don't know. But I do know that when I'm engaging with somebody from a place of, well, you know, greed is a huge one for me. And, and it, it's not necessarily greed around money. Yeah. It's like greed around affection, greed around, um, intimacy like just being like my I can turn cold on somebody in a way that it becomes like an ice storm to them and I have to be very cautious with it because um I shine very bright like I shine like a sun and when this when that light turns away it's like it's very cold and that's cruel
0: and it breaks trust
1: and it breaks it breaks trust it yeah. it's very damaging so <clears throat> i know like whether the world gets better or doesn't get better or whatever it gets, i i i know that the practice for, i i just don't want to be cruel
0: so Ian, that sounds like that sounds like your personal vow <laughs>
1: it's <laughs> I, have, I wish I wish it were so simple. I've got like seven things. of I, <laughs> I just like don't. I, the things that we would do differently. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, is, as soon as you said that, anger was like, "Wait a second! I'm on top of the list." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think actually, I think my personal vow. Is not about cruelty or the anger. I think, and this is just me talking to you. I don't even, I haven't thought about this totally, but you know, I I worry so deeply for the people who suffer. Yeah. And it's funny. So I live at this place and there's people who've been practicing here for a long time. And part of me, I don't care about their practice at all. I really care about the person who walks in the door for the very first time. I don't know if they're going to come back. Like, I don't know what, if it's, but they are actually the person I care about more than anybody else. And, uh and sometimes I get discouraged because, you know, as you know, you've lived with these, well, you've participated in larger sanghas. Like it can be when we know each other very well, we can, Kind of get clicky and you know all these things, right?
3: Yeah.
1: And um,
2: and I worry about the person who's come that night because they're just lost. And I'm like, is my
1: sangha doing the right thing? Because I don't know if they're if we're there for those people. Anyways, that's just me spilling well, tea. <laughs> yeah, you
0: know, I think if we um, when
2: new people come to Ocean Gate.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I think that the people are looking for something
0: we're all looking for something and so we're shopping checking mm-hmm. seeing what's out there and I just want to try to meet people where they are in that moment right and at the same time our practice has a certain form it looks a certain way I'm a priest you know I'm dressed a certain way so um and that may or may not work for that person. You know, it may or may not be a good fit. And we are blessed to have a sangha of people who are very welcoming and uh, easygoing in that way. And so I think a lot of people feel very comfortable when they come. Uh, so I think that that's, that's a very nice thing. When I first started practicing Zen, I did not feel comfortable. I thought it was just scary.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Totally scary. Um, so I, both neither Jaku nor I, Dijaku or I, I want to, uh, perpetuate that scariness part, but there is a way in which it has a certain form. So I think we try to welcome people as much as we can, and at the same time, not overwhelm them and be all over them. And then they can, <laughs> you know, they come back and they don't. <laughs>
1: right. And it's fine. For me, part of it is it's fine if they don't come back. I just want them to have met a friendly face at least once that day.
0: Absolutely. That sounds like a wonderful practice.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's my vow. I don't know. I'll think about that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, now you have also written a a book that is, you know, to go online and and read the reviews of this book, uh, Glowing glowing reviews of being time and um i i've read some dogan but not not a lot it's um i well i just haven't read a lot and i started listening to a talk you were giving on it and there was part of me that was like okay <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if i know what this i don't know what this is and uh i'm wondering if you could share a little bit about it um because he's combining this word he, he created a word it looks like he created a word uji
2: is that correct where he sort of mashes together being and time and then you wrote a book about it <laughs> why why is it why
1: is this why is this so important
0: well,
2: personally,
1: yes.
0: I feel like Dogen is the unified field theory
2: of reality.
0: Okay, wow. I mean, personally,
2: I feel like he got this
0: overview of reality's functioning within the context of practice that is really just spot on. He is a, a, a mystic. Kind of, uh, obviously, an incredibly smart man, very articulate, really could write well, but also extremely difficult to understand. And some of the things he writes, I'm like, really? You know. (laughs)
1: That's Um, when I listen to your talk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was reading a fascicle... uh, of Dogen's yesterday that is about I'm this is serious. Mm-hmm. I mean what I'm about to tell you. It really is the topic. Part of it is about how to use the bathroom in the woods.
1: Oh yeah. And well, it, that's pretty important actually.
0: In the using the appropriate forms so that you're doing it with the appropriate, you know, dignity of a practitioner. Yeah. So there's that side of Dogen. But much of what we read of Dogen, we don't usually read those fascicles that he wrote, those particular things. He's not famous for that. But the things that, that were, he's most famous for are pretty poetic, uh, difficult to understand, and they really have to be unpacked. And G is a text like that, uh, where you have to, I did, um, I don't read Japanese or Chinese or anything else. Mm-hmm. So except in English. And so I really had to read a lot of scholarly, uh, commentaries on Uji in order to kind of get the lay of the land and also books about Dogen's worldview, his understanding of how things work. And, uh, yeah, so that was how I did it. And then then the book itself, what I did in the book is I would take a, a paragraph of Uji Write down my understanding of what the actual, what he was actually saying in the paragraph. And then I would talk about the practice of that, like for us as practitioners. Because it's all, it's on like on those three levels. You know, first there's the actual text. Then you have to figure out what the actual text means. And then you have to interpret that into, because Dogen was a practitioner. He wasn't a philosopher. He was someone who was a Buddhist teacher who sincerely practiced Buddhism, and he was very erudite and I think somewhat intellectual, but if you read uh, some of his other writings, he's very emotional. You know, the first time in China when he was uh, doing what we call the robe chant, which is you sit a period of zazen for, in the morning, and, and at the end of it, you put your uh, Buddhist robe on your head. And you say, you know, a a verse. And the first time he heard that in in China, when he went there, he was in his 20s, he started to cry. He was so moved by that, he started to cry. So he had had this uh, deep, deep uh, heart connection to the practice. And that shows in his writings. And often when people read Dogen, there's something about it to them that resonates as truth, but they don't know what it is. It's like they're reading it and they go, "Wow, there's there's something here I can't quite articulate it intellectually, but it 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 it's like a koan, right? You know, you hear a koan. I'm now you probably I'm assuming you do formal koan practice. Yeah, I do. I don't do right, so you're doing formal koan practice, and there must be koans that you hear and you go. I don't what this is about. Yeah, what this is about.
1: maybe all of them, <laughs> you
0: know, I have no idea what this is about, but there's something about it that I know there's something going on here that
1: absolutely
0: I investigate 100%. Right. Yes, yeah. so Dogen's like that. You're reading it and you go, I have a heart connection with this, there's something going on here, I don't know what it is, but I want to keep doing this because I want to know what it is, right? Um, and like a Koan practice, a formal Koan practice, you have a teacher, right? And you go to the teacher and you go like, blah, blah, blah. And doks or whatever, you know, the interview, you say what you think it is, you get wrung out a (laughs) hundred (laughs) times. And then then you go back and, you know, I've heard you go back and you say the same thing you said the first time and they're like, yeah, that's it.
1: Yep, there's some truth to that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So there's this way in which something got unpacked there and 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 Dogen's like that too. You have to unpack it for you know. You can't kind of make up stories about what you think it's about. I think it's important to really understand what what he's saying as opposed to just kind of making up a story. But I think from all of this, it starts with this basic heart connection. So let me just
1: go into it a little bit. So when you were first working with Dogen, you had probably some similar experience where it's like, oh this I feel something here and I don't know if you can give an example of when
2: it moved from oh I feel it to oh I I I get it
0: well I don't know that I can say I get it
1: (laughs) no I (laughs) as soon as I said I was
0: like maybe that's (laughs) I get part of it I'm in a park so right, it's like it's like going to the baseball game. I'm in the ballpark. I'm yeah. not standing out in the street. So, yeah. What happened for me is, um, I think at heart, I, I'm I'm an intellectual person, and so I like to study. And I was um, asked by some students at San Francisco Zen Center uh, if they if I would come and teach, just teach some fascicles. So I started to teach um, uh, Uji at a certain point, which was crazy. I have to tell you, it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I look up on that and I go, what was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) So We spent a year studying Uji. Oh. And of course, to teach that, I had to do a lot of studying on my own in order to teach this group. And at some point, and then we went and, and studied another fascicle called Busho, which means Buddha nature. And I also have to say, looking back on that, like it was crazy. What was I thinking? And then we went back to Uji, and at that point, people were saying, "Why don't you write this down as a book?" Mm-hmm. So the book took five years to write, and mm-hmm. it came out of that class. And so the because because i've I am in a person who's somewhat intellectual or a lot intellectual, and also I have a heart connection to practice as well, like we all do, that mm-hmm. to combine those things and then always to say in in as a teacher, I always say to myself, "How does this apply to our everyday contemporary life how how can we convey this how do how You know, how do I convey this in a way that, that works, that people can take this and do something with it, you know? And so that, that's how I started studying Dogen. Uh, I don't, you know, that's all I can say.
1: (laughs) But I really, I want to catch right on that last line, which is, you know, so this, you know, Dogen lived around 800 years ago or something like that. and. Here we are still reading him. And he, and we're in this moment in time which is well let's just say there's some anxiety, right? There's a pandemic, there's an election, there's a, I mean there's worldwide anxiety. Politics are crazy, the environment is very concerning for a lot of people.
2: Is there something in this Uji, being, time, that can help us as practitioners, as people just trying to make our way?
0: Yeah, I think there is. First of all, Dogen lived in a crazy time himself. There were earthquakes. Mm. Um, A lot of really weird weather stuff was going on. Politics were crazy. So he was in the middle of it. Hmm. He was also an orphan. Uh, Both of his parents were dead. And it was was a difficult time. So what's in Uji? There are many things in Uji, but some of the things that that I like in is he's very clear in Uji that we are Buddhists. He says, you know, uh, you have the radiance, And so does this mean that everything we do is Buddha? You know, we're acting like Buddhas? No. But it does mean that we do not have to wait through hundreds of lifetimes in order to find a full expression of the Buddha way. And it also means that, to me anyway, it means that because we are not separate from that, there's so much that we do in our lives all the time, that is the way of a Buddha, that is the expression of a Buddha. So Dogen says in Genjo Koan, he says, uh, the very famous quote, to carry the self forward is delusion, to allow myriad things to come forth and meet you, is realization. The ability to allow your life, all of your life to come forward and meet you in a particular situation, and that you can respond without the small self, or you can respond in a way that is still the small self but going beyond the small self and therefore skillful, that is that golden radiance of the 24 hours of your day that Dogen talks about. So that's something I think is very encouraging to all of us, that that it is right there. There is nothing between us because we are that already. And so, for example, what I like to give is, and this sounds very prosaic, but I think that realization is that like that. Realization happens in our everyday lives, not in some uh, special state. So if you're driving your car and you're stopping at stoplights and you're letting people in who need to be led into the lane in front of you, and you are like a vast moving mandala of life, driving this car, you are a Buddha driving the car, and you are engaging in realized action. That is realized action. It doesn't have to be something woo-woo. And I think Dogen is very clear that it's about our everyday lives. So uh, that's one thing that he says in Uji that I think is really encouraging.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Reverend Shinshu Roberts encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Ocean Gate Zen Center at oceangatezen.org. I'll include a link to the Zen Center and to her book in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are invited to try a free month of training with the online sangha. To access your free month, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host,
2: Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.